Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. There is a plank of wood on the wall of my new office that was given to me by my wife and children. After the installation service, I went home and there was a gift for me that they were excited to give me. It was a plank of wood. And on the wood, in beautiful lettering, are the words of Paul from Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And my wife wanted me to have this for my own encouragement, but also as a symbol of a testimony to me that she would, was committing to not be ashamed of me for bearing shame for Jesus. And so I put it there across on the opposite wall for me when I look up from my desk when I'm working, there it is. And it is a beautiful reminder to me of a lot of things, but my wife's commitment to not be ashamed of me. Our sermon today is about that. It is about shame. Or rather how we are to how we are called as Christians to be unashamed as we live out our faith before the world. This summer, as you remember from last week, we are looking at a series of New Testament imperatives. Imperatives are like commands, instructions given in the Bible, or it's a a form of language or mode of expression. Imperatives are commands. We're looking at a series of New Testament commands that we believe are timely or pertinent for us to discuss right now. Is it timely or pertinent to discuss living unashamed of the Lord. Always. Always pertinent and timely. But especially for us in this season of transition, it's important. And as the world is increasing its pressure on us and bearing down on us and the rebellion of our world is increasing and we come under scrutiny and pressure to to apologize for what we believe or hide what we believe or diminish what we believe or give up what we believe out of shame and embarrassment, It's very timely for us. God would have us, you and me, as his sons and daughters who have received his truth, he would have us stand up tall, hold our heads up high, and not be ashamed about what we are or what we believe about him. That's the message of today's scripture passage, which is 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. And this passage is helpful because not only does it tell us what we must do, that is, not be ashamed and join Paul in suffering for the gospel, but it opens up to us why we should do that, and most importantly, how we can do that, because it's a hard, it's a hard thing. That's a big ask. It's a hard thing for us to have faith to do. Let's hear the Apostle Paul in his own words, words which Paul wrote from a prison cell in Rome under the Emperor Nero. You heard of that guy? And shortly before he was killed himself for his faith in Jesus. This is God's word and it is eternally true. This is Paul writing to his protege, his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, a fellow pastor. And he says to him, Therefore, Timothy... Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me 
in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. This is the word of the Lord. So there's more than one imperative in this passage. You might have noticed that. But right away we hit the main one from which the other ones flow as applications. And the main one is this. Do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed, says Paul. What would Paul have Timothy not be ashamed of? Well, there's two things. The first is, he says, the testimony of of our Lord, both Paul's Lord and his, or of me, his prisoner. It's very sweet, actually, that Paul calls himself the Lord's prisoner. He's actually Nero's prisoner, but that's not how Paul sees it. He's there for Jesus Christ, under Jesus' authority and for his sake. And so he is the prisoner of the Lord. But he says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony or of me, who has imparted that testimony to you. Now, this is a negative command or imperative. Do not. Do not be ashamed. But Paul immediately goes on and he adds a second part of it, a second imperative, a positive command, on the other hand, in parallel construction with the first. Do not be ashamed, but join me in suffering for the gospel. Do not be ashamed, but do join me in suffering for the gospel. How do those two things go together? They go together in this way. Whenever we are faced with the possibility of suffering with or for Jesus, we either will embrace that opportunity in faith or turn from our Savior and his faithful servants in embarrassment and shame. Whenever we're faced with an opportunity to suffer shame for the Lord, we'll either embrace that opportunity in faith or we will turn from him and from others who are faithful being ashamed of the Lord. There is no other choice, and it is a choice that's constantly before us. How do you, brother and sister, how do you fare in your life as you face that choice? You face it constantly. You know you do. How do you fare when those choice, that choice comes upon you and you're forced to make it? Are you ashamed of Jesus? Are you ashamed of Jesus? Either of his testimony, his words, the gospel, or of other faithful men or women in your life who suffer shame and embarrassment for the Lord? Are you ashamed of the Lord or of his servants? How do you fare? That's a very important question. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of how you honestly go about answering that question, evaluating yourself in light of this command. And here's why, and I want you to listen very carefully. The most, some of the most sober words in the Bible from Jesus who said, 
Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, Jesus, myself, will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes. Do you want Jesus to be ashamed of you? Remember how Peter was ashamed of Jesus? The little servant girl says, hey, I've seen you with him. Don't you know Jesus? No, I tell you, I, I've never known, I've never, I don't know that man. I don't know anything about that man. Do you want Jesus to be like that with you when he comes? I'm sorry, I don't know that gentleman. He's not mine. You want him to deny you? Then, what you must do is live and act in such a way as not to be ashamed of him. Do not be ashamed of him. And he won't be ashamed of you. But that's a hard choice to make. Here's the choice as I see it laid out by Paul. You can be ashamed of Jesus or you can suffer shame for Jesus. And that's a difficult choice to make. Why is it difficult? Because we don't like to suffer shame. Who likes to be shamed? That is like one of the worst feelings in the world, to be utterly humiliated for who you are, for what you believe, who you're associated with, to be rejected, to be despised, to be ridiculed, made fun of, to be overlooked. No one likes that. But Paul, according to Paul, there is no other option. You can either be ashamed of Jesus or you can suffer shame. You can, bring sh- you can allow shame to rest upon you for the sake of him. Those are your options. And according to Paul, there is no third option down the middle. But that is the, the, the very thing that we specialize in trying to, to chart for ourselves. A course right down the middle between those two options where we're, we have sort of a kind of elite or a sort of we sort of fulfill the command of not being ashamed of Jesus and we somehow amazingly avoid bringing approbation or rejection upon ourselves or shame upon ourselves for being associated with him. That's a lie. That is not possible. It doesn't exist. And it always results in you being ashamed of the Lord. But it's a lie that we tell ourselves And it's a lie that the church practices over the last several decades. This is like one of the things, this is one of the attempts, the false hopes that the church has practiced to avoid shame from coming upon themselves, to look plausible, to look workable, to look approachable, to look reasonable to the world, but still give allegiance to Jesus and to his ways. But while sort of apologizing or sort of distancing ourselves. And that has led to the worst errors in the church of Jesus Christ. The places we have gone most astray from the Lord. And we, it amounts to ultimately a being shamed of Jesus and of his words. There's no middle option. You must choose being ashamed of Jesus or suffering shame for him. Why is it so hard, so hard 
to choose to suffer shame for Jesus. It's hard enough to suffer shame or pain. We just don't like pain, you know? Any, any sort of pain. Physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain. We don't like pain. We are by nature averse to pain. Sort of not ultimately a bad thing. It protects us from a lot of problems. You don't, you touch the stove, it's hot. You're averse to pain. That's a good natural response. But here we cannot be averse to pain. We have to be willing to embrace it for Jesus' sake in our spiritual lives, relationally with many people in our lives. Why is it so difficult? It's hard enough for us to embrace pain when, we're mo- when the motivation is our own vanity or our good health, right? I get up and go for a jog because I want to lose weight, but I'll do that maybe the next day. This morning I'm just going to lie in bed. It's hard, it's hard to embrace pain, short-term pain for long-term good. That's hard. How much harder is it when the long-term good is an invisible, eternal reality, possibly way off in the distance, and the short-term cost of that is my good standing with you or your or good vibes together or how you think of me, how I feel, how we feel about each other. That is a hard that's that is a price that is hard to pay. That is a price I find very hard to pay personally. It's hard to have faith to choose to suffer. Who in their right mind actually would choose to do this? To say and act and operate and speak in such a way as people around you despise you and reject you? Who in their right mind intentionally, knowingly, would do that? Christians. The, Bible, the biblical answer is Christians do. Christians choose that way. Faithful Christians do. A cheerful willingness to suffer shame for Jesus characterized the ministry of the apostles from day one. There's an amazing account in Acts chapter 5 where we read that the apostles, because of the things they were going around saying and doing, stirred up the jealousy of the Jews who didn't like it didn't like how popular they were becoming, and they arrested them. And they dragged them before the Jewish council and commanded them not to speak anymore in Jesus' name, and to which they gave their famous reply, we must obey God rather than men. And they narrowly escaped the sentences of death. They, most of the council wanted to put them to death. And this guy named Gamaliel, a Pharisee, argued in a dismissive way about them, and that's how they ended up. So they, they, didn't, they didn't die, but they did get belittled and dismissed. He, just, he basically said, there's been a lot of little movements like this, and you know, this is probably going to come to nothing, so we shouldn't make much a big deal about these people. you know. And that's what got them off the hook, but it wasn't utterly off the hook. Here's what we read in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 40. Listen to this. Calling the apostles in, so they, they deliberated about what to do. Then they called the apostles into the room and they flogged them. They whipped them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council. What? Rejoicing. They went on their way after being flogged and whipped and despised and belittled. 
rejoicing. What on earth? Well, it tells us why. They went on their way rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Worthy. Who am I, Lord, that I should have such a high honor as to suffer in a little way like you did for your sake? And every day in the temple and from house to house, they learned their lesson and they shut up and never got in trouble again. That's not what it says. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's amazing. And that same spirit and outlook on suffering shame for Jesus runs all the way through the New Testament scriptures. It's quite the theme of the scriptures. It makes up a lot of the example that we see of the apostles and acts, and it's a theme throughout their letters, encouraging people to count it all joy when you suffer shame, embarrassment, trials because of your faith in Jesus. Count it a joy. It's a privilege. Look, have a positive outlook on it. Rejoice in it. I did a little bit of a survey or a tour of the New Testament this week. Decided I couldn't bring it all to you because we just don't have time. But you should, it's an amazing study to just look through the scriptures for all the teaching and all the examples about suffering for Jesus, suffering and enduring persecution. I just want to try to summarize what the New Testament would have us understand, the outlook and the perspective we should have on suffering, shame, and persecution for Jesus. Number one, we're taught to expect it. It's not to come as a surprise to us. We're taught to expect it. Jesus said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We were taught by Jesus himself to expect it. The apostle Peter, when he's writing to the Christians dispersed abroad, he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised. We're taught to expect it. And Paul, later in this very letter to Timothy, says, Indeed, Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. So we learn if there's no suffering shame for Jesus in our lives, and it, really much, it really begs the question, do we desire a godly life? Are we pursuing God and obedience to God as we should if there's no trouble or shame or difficulty that we incur because of it? We're taught to expect persecution and suffering for Jesus. Number two, we're taught to embrace suffering and persecution when it comes. We see that here in this passage. In verse eight, Paul says to Timothy, join me. Join me in suffering for the gospel. He would have Timothy embrace that calling and privilege with him. Join me, Timothy, in suffering for these incredible things and this incredible Lord. And elsewhere, Paul writes to Timothy saying, suffer hardship with me, Timothy, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And the example of all the, the great men and women of Scripture and all of God's prophets before the New Testament teach us to embrace 
suffering. And lastly, we're, the New Testament teaches us to rejoice in suffering. Expect it, embrace it when it comes, and rejoice in it. This is, like the, this is the one that just trips my breakers. Rejoice in it. It is an honor and a privilege to suffer for the Lord. That's the perspective of the New Testament. Unqualified honor and privilege to suffer shame for Jesus. It is a sign of high standing in God's kingdom. That's how they look at when it came. People thought, God has given me a promotion. God has excellent things in store for me. And this is an evidence of that. It's also a sign it's to be rejoiced in as something that God uses to work very good things in our lives and in the lives of others. How many examples from church history do we have where the faith of, the, of a martyr is what inspires faith, God uses as an example or a witness to grant faith to others. This goes all the way back to Jesus, the first martyr, as a centurion is looking on and watching how he died. And he just says, surely this is the Son of God. Most, most of these guys go out kicking and screaming and reviling and spewing hatred. But this man says, forgive them. This must be the Son of God. God would have us rejoice. Rejoice when we have an opportunity to suffer shame and embarrassment or pain for him. Jesus himself, in the Sermon on the Mount, among the Beatitudes, that really beautiful, concise statement, of series of statements about, I don't know what they're about, what would you say? Who's blessed? The type of people that are blessed he, as the capstone statement about blessing, he says this. This is the last beatitude. Blessed, says Jesus, are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company with all the prophets. And the apostle James wrote, saying, Consider it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We are called to expect suffering, embrace suffering for Jesus, and rejoice in it when it comes. Do you expect, do you embrace, and do you rejoice in opportunities to suffer shame for Jesus? I expect not so much. If you're like me, you're thinking, oh, that's hopeless. That's hopeless. Are there any honest people in the room? 
I feel hopeless for myself about this. When, when I hear Jesus say, if you're ashamed of me, my words, I'll be ashamed of you. I don't know how to bear it. Because I think over my life, I look at my encounters, with pe- my weak encounters with people who are on my side, let alone people who stand a little bit apart from me or a long ways over there. How often and how pervasive our shame, our being ashamed of our master is. It is horrible. A very wicked sin. I and you are very guilty before God because of it. I'm just so thankful for the example of Peter (laughs) in Scripture because I can identify with that. Little servant girl saying, hey, you've been with Jesus. No, no, I don't know that man. Three times and with curses. I can identify with that because I have lived and do live still so much in bondage to what people think about me and how we're doing relationally. And many of you do too. And it just, it's, it's, a, it's a selfish, self-seeking indulgence of the flesh that dishonors the Lord. And we, we deny him constantly in little ways, sometimes in big ways in our lives and in our interactions with the lost, with the world. So I feel pretty hopeless myself about this, but there, thankfully, is great hope in this passage for me and for you. And here's where it starts, and you can be very thankful that Paul did not stop this when he says, join me in suffering for the gospel, period. He says, don't be ashamed and join me in suffering with the gospel according to the power of God. According to the power of God. Not according to your strength, Timothy, but according to the strength of Almighty God, His power. Here's how you're to suffer and embrace suffering and rejoice in it by God's power. What a relief. If God's power is available to you and me to do this work and to obey him in this, then there is real hope for us. Nothing is too difficult for God. Now what does Paul mean when he says, do these things according to the power of God? He seems to me to be talking in two aspects, two aspects of God's power towards us. One is his power toward us, We see that in verses 9 to 11. We'll talk about that. And we see that there is God's power at work within us. He has done things toward us, and he is at work within us by his spirit. We see that in verse 12. What is God's power toward us? Paul says in verse 8, Join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Here's the start of a string of things God has done toward us that are powerful things. According to the power of God, who did what? Who saved us. Let's start there. (laughs) Among powerful things. What did he save us from? Remember Pastor Bailey was exhorting us to give feedback. I want, this is your time to shine. You're preaching now. 
death. What kind of death? Who said that? What kind of death? Eternal death. God saved us from eternal death. What else did he save us from? What? How, yes, about the power of sin, the curse of sin, the judgment due because of sin, his own wrath against sin. He saved us from that. We don't bear condemnation anymore. That's a mighty thing. You live in that. That's yours from God. He has done that toward you. What else? Paul goes on. First, he saved us, and he called us with a holy calling. What are we as saved men and women, children? What are we? What is our calling? He describes, I think it's Peter, quoting the Old Testament. He describes it as, you, we together, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God for his own possession so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our calling. That's who we are. He saved us. He made us that for him and in this world. What else did he do? Oh, he did these things not according to our works. You have to get that in there. And I'm glad it's there. What a relief to me. Because if you look at yourself honestly, you have to conclude there is, there is nothing there. Nothing to commend you to God. So he did these things for some other reason. <laughs> it wasn't according to your works. You couldn't have worked that up, that he would save you, nor that he would give you such a high calling or standing in his house. Not according to your works, but according to his own purpose and grace, his own gracious purpose, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. By grace you have been saved. And God's saving of you is so entirely independent of any action or movement on your part that it was decided before the world began. That's what Paul's trying to emphasize. Not according to your works, but according to God's own gracious purposes, which got settled before any of this started. Back there, when it was just the Lord, the triune God, in conversation with himself, decided he knew you, and he called you. He elected you. That's who you are. That's the grace of God toward you. It happened back then in eternity. He called you. He had a gracious purpose for you, for his own glory, to exhibit his mercy to his own glory. You're the beneficiary of that. You receive that from God. 
And all of that has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Jesus came. He fulfilled all righteousness. At the right time, he died for the ungodly, you and me. And all that was decided in ancient history past before time was revealed and brought to light and made clear and made known and is being made known because of Jesus and his coming and his work. Now, the crowning achievement of Jesus and his work. And this is, there's a lot of hope and power in this. Jesus abolished death. He abolished death. It was your master and mine. We were enslaved to it, the fear of death. Hebrews talks about that Jesus came and gave himself to release us from the fear of death which we have been enslaved to our whole lives. And isn't it the fear of death, really, ultimately, that's behind all fear? Certainly fear of pain or suffering. I do not have to be in bondage to how you feel about me because Jesus conquered death. Yes, death is still a reality. And in some sense, it still is an enemy. But it is not the enemy it once was. Death is really an opening of the door to glory and eternity. And however we end up having to walk through that door, small potatoes. Whatever suffering or difficulty is very temporary and short-lived and not worthy to be compared to the glories that await. Jesus conquered death so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That's Paul's summary of the power of God towards you, towards me. And we're ashamed of him. We have no reason. We have every reason, rather, to be maximally confident and to stand tall for him and to smile at and receive and embrace and even rejoice in whatever pain or suffering or persecution or opposition that we endure for his sake. When you have all of that, why would you feel in any way insecure? He, Paul brings these things to mind so that we will remember and carry with us in our hearts and our minds as we un, go about our lives and in, interactions in this world. He wants us to feel very secure in what God has done for us. He also wants us to know God's power within us. God is incredibly powerful toward us in Jesus, but he is also powerful within us by his spirit. Paul says, I suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. I've been made a minister of these things. I'm an apostle, I'm a preacher and evangelist, and that's why I suffer these things. 
but I am not ashamed. And why? For, he says in verse 12, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Where does that kind of conviction come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. It's not enough to just know a series of wonderful facts, amazing facts, and to give assent and say, oh yes, I I accept those facts. We have to be convinced of them. And that's what the Holy Spirit gives. He is a spirit of conviction. He convicts of sin. He convicts of righteousness and of judgment. He is a spirit of conviction. And he has convinced Paul that all these things are true, really true, completely true, the most true things. And Paul is able to entrust all his life, all his hopes, all the promises God has made towards him. It's like he says here, I put it in your bank account. I know that you're good for it. I know that it's there for me when it's your time. And that day, when all the accounts are reconciled, and all the debts are paid, and all the obligations are fulfilled, and all the promises are met, on that day, I know you're good for it. That's what Paul wants for you and me. The conviction that all the promises of the gospel are real and true and can be absolutely counted on. No matter how crazy things around you are, how much pain you're enduring for Jesus' sake, that your hope in him is so completely sure that you can rejoice even in suffering and in trial. I know whom I have believed. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is the one who takes all that that Jesus accomplished in redemption and applies it to us in a knowing and a saving way. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He does it powerfully. You know, one of the things that is most sweet and beautiful to me about this whole passage is that it was written to Timothy. And I can identify with Timothy. Timothy was not known for his courage or his vigor or strength. He seems, as we read about him in Scripture, or read what Paul, how Paul exhorts him and how Paul tries to help him with his bodily ailments, he seems to be something of a timid, kind of weak, frail man. Not a, not a lion and not a champion kind of guy. A weak, timid, shy, and young man. In over his head kind of man. I can identify with that. Being unashamed for Jesus and being willing to bear shame for Jesus has nothing to do with your personality. You can be a Paul. You can be an Apollos. You can be a Timothy. What it has to do with is a spirit of conviction that is resident within you as a gift from God. And that spirit which God gives and who mightily works within us, Paul tells us some really helpful things about this spirit in the verse just preceding our passage. You know this verse very well. I've saved it for now. Verse 7 of this chapter. That spirit is not a spirit of fear, 
but of power and love and a sound mind. That's the spirit that God has granted to us. Do you have that spirit in you? The spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Do you feel like you need more of that? That's how I live most of my life. Well, you know what Jesus says? Ask. Ask for that. We want a beautiful statement of Jesus in the Gospels in Luke 11. He says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So ask. Let's ask for the gift, an increasing gift and measure and blessing of the Holy Spirit so that we could even rejoice in suffering. Uh, in closing, I want to draw our attention briefly to two additional imperatives that appear in our text and which follow from the initial one as applications from the call to be unashamed of the gospel and to suffer for Jesus. Paul writes in verse 13, he says, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That's number one. And number two, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. When I think of being unashamed of the gospel of Jesus and suffering shame for Jesus, I normally think of going out there and, and getting after it in a public sort of offense, offensive, not offensive, but offensive sense, you know, like, like bringing it to them. And if they, if they reject me, you know, I, I, I guess I'll rejoice in that. But that's how I normally, that's where my mind goes. It goes to like outward focused, evangelistic, offensive action. Paul's applications to Timothy here, though, are interestingly other. They are essentially conservative. They are about defense. It's about holding ground, guarding treasure. We're going to have opportunity later in this series, Lord willing, to consider applications from this kind of faith that lead us to go out and to talk and to talk up Jesus and to not be ashamed of him in that sense, in an evangelistic sense. But here Paul is thinking more about guarding and protecting and conserving and preserving what we already have. It's, it's about holding ground, guarding treasure, not about losing ground. So evangelism and the defense of truth are both, so evangelism and the defense of truth are both necessary goals, and they go together. We can't hope to effectively win and disciple souls with a compromised or diminished gospel. And so we have to make sure that what we have to offer is the straight dope, the really powerful stuff. And that's what Paul's focused on here. He's, he's at the end of his life. He has given his life to a certain teaching, a certain gospel message and witness and he has entrusted it to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, guard that. Guard it. Keep it pure. Keep it complete. Guard it like a treasure. Hold to it. Don't let it go.
Don't let anybody take it from you. Take it from God's people. Hold it and, go, and guard it like a treasure. Brothers and sisters, we are sitting on top of a huge pile of wealth, of knowledge and teaching that we have received for 25 or 26 years in this church. A huge treasure of biblical gospel teaching and understanding and practice. It's been handed to us, and we got to keep it. If we don't, we're no good. We have nothing to offer. You and I, this is our job. This is why, this is where we're going to be tested about whether we're ashamed first. (laughs) Because Satan does not want us to keep this treasure. This treasure is so glorious and so powerful against him. And he hates it. And he wants us robbed of it. And so we have to guard it, hold it. For the treasure it is. Now, Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel, the testimony of our Lord. And we tend to think about that in like this limited, strict sense, technical sense, the gospel. John three sixteen sense. But Paul rarely is thinking about the gospel in that way. For Paul, the gospel is everything he had to say, which came to him from the Lord and with the authority of the Holy Spirit and his inspiration. All that Paul had to say, manhood and womanhood, ethics, the whole thing, all that we've received here faithfully, we are to hold to it and not let it go. It's all part of the gospel message. And it's not so much anymore in our society. We're kind of like inured to Jesus and the cross. You know, the cross and Jesus are everywhere. We have to work pretty hard to get people to care about it. But you don't have to work hard at all to get people to care about manhood and womanhood. At all. That's, this is, these are the kinds of places where our commitment to the Lord and our willingness to be unashamed about him is going to be tested. All this treasure that we sit upon, that we're perched on right now, is liberating. It is powerful. It gives life. You enjoy it in your life. It has given you such comfort and peace and hope. that you can be what God made you to be unapologetically as a man or a woman. That's a treasure. And we have to guard it. And we have to make sure Satan doesn't rob us of it and that we are never ashamed of it. There's more than one way to let it go, to lose it. One way is to just let it slip through our fingers, to let us be shamed into giving up ground, (laughs) surrendering treasure. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you, you know, that's a pretty good point. You know, I guess I should just sort of shuffle some of the money or the capital over there to your side. That's, That's one way, but 
Another way which we see in this passage is it can go stale on us. It's like the fizz goes out of the pop. Dr. Pepper's the worst for this. <laughs> it's an okay soda. A lot of people are crazy about it. But you've got to catch Dr. Pepper in the first, like, 30 seconds <laughs> to get the full pleasure of the Dr. Pepper because it goes flat pretty quick, and it does not sustain in its syrup <laughs> the enjoyment that other... Sorry. We don't want the fizz to go out on the truth here. And Paul says to Timothy, here's how you're to hold to and retain the standard of sound or healthy words which you have heard from me. Here's how you do it in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It, it can go flat. We, can, we, could, we could continue our practices for a century without faith and without love. Whole movements do this. They just kind of, they start off with energy and enthusiasm and commitment, real faith and love and zeal for the Lord, and then they wind up looking around and wondering why we do these things anymore. It's just bare, what? Dead orthodox practice, dead practice, empty gestures without meaning. Paul says to Timothy, here's how you retain the standard of words which I've taught you, with faith and with love. We have to have faith and love for the truth. So as we work together, you and me, to retain and guard the treasure that God has given us so as not to be ashamed of him and to keep these truths precious and safe here, let's not be cold or become cold or dead at all, but let's continually approach the, the truth that we have with faith and with love. And this too, not by our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, which we have within us. Last week, I asked you and exhorted you to pray for me, to pray for us. Add to that prayer this, that we would not be ashamed, your shepherds would not be ashamed of the gospel. And I'll pray for you, that you would not be ashamed of the gospel or of us, if God has it for us to suffer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and the testimony of our Lord, the words of life, sound words, healthy words, which you have blessed us with. And I pray, Father, that you would, by your spirit, as we think upon what you have done in Jesus Christ, that you would, by your Spirit, help us to not be ashamed of you, not be ashamed of you, but to love and honor you before this world, to live faithful lives, unapologetic lives, unashamed lives, full of faith and full of love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.